0: Good evening, everyone. I' first I'd like to just extend some gratitude to all of you for for just being here <laughs> and um, offering your genuine commitment to this practice and all the ways that it showed up. I want to thank you for that. And I also want to just thank this space and this facility and all the support that's here to help the Dharma uh, flourish in our heart minds. And what I'd like to talk about this evening is how we extend this goodness into our lives. It's been a really short weekend (laughs) in this long weekend retreat and I I know a number of you have been feeling the the sense of it being kind of dense and really concentrated in some ways a lot of information a lot of things to maybe pay attention to a lot of things to let go of so tonight, I'm just going to, to add a few flavors to the stew I talked about on the first evening that we've actually been cooking together. And we can start to sample a little taste of it as we start to move back into our lives. First, to acknowledge the teaching that Jonathan gave on the hindrances. And this is such a, a important Practice and it's so immediate in a way because when we sit down, our lives and our mind bombard, bombard us. And what I find with these hindrances is that it's so helpful to be able to name it because it cuts through all of the story and uh, allows me to simplify what's happening by just giving it a name so that's a really precious way to be with what arises in the mind and the heart as you sit on the cushion and in your life. And then Tara gave us this really rich textured offering around aversive, uh, what was the term, aversive judgment. And I know none of you, none of you have been dealing with that this week. (laughs) I just wrote a book about rage, but it's really not a part of my life anymore. (laughs) And we know, we know that uh, that's just a kind of an impulse that we have in our lives. Um, And it could be a big secret because sometimes and often for many of us it's not spoken out loud, but then for others of us it's spoken out loud too much. Uh, But just being able to notice that that habit of mind, that habituation, is a beautiful um, thing to just capture. And we were given lots of ways to kind of be with that and be still with that and to know that there's something underneath that that we can know more intimately that can provide a certain uh, softening and soothing into into our moment to moment experiences. So, I'd like to talk this evening about labor of love, which is kind of the topic of this retreat. But I want to um, offer maybe a little bit around this thing of uh, this dance with suffering and beauty. As we walk back into our lives, you know, there's this cartoon that I saw about. There are two chickens and they're divided by this long fence and they're looking over the fence at each other and one says, how do you you get to the other side? And the chicken says, you are on the other side. (laughs) So often we're thinking, oh, this is a retreat, but then this is my real life. But, you know, you kind of take yourself everywhere you go and then you discover what's there again and again and again. So a lot of this is about waking up to where we are, and knowing that it's always on the other side, so to speak. One fundamental question I think we sit with is what actions liberate the heart? And this is something we can know on the inside. It's more than a concept. What actions liberate the heart? What actions can I take? What actions do I take that... Liberate the heart. One of the things we started with on the first evening was setting intentions. And all of you had a chance to connect with each other. Maybe some of those ten intentions have remained throughout the retreat. Maybe they've shifted. Maybe you've tossed them out the window altogether. But having an attention actually keeps us in a place of focus instead of just being all over the place with our desires. So having an intention as whether we're here on retreat or whether we're leaving retreat uh, is a nice guiding light for us because then we can hold ourselves to, to our own fine mind, to our own creation of what's important for us. So a common way we do that in this tradition is through Uh, The precepts and the refuges which we took on the first night. But another way that this happens is through the the path of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is um, a person just like you and me who uh, have devoted themselves to waking their heart and mind up for the benefit of all beings. And the Buddha referred to himself as a Bodhisattva prior to his enlightenment. So it's like the Buddha was, was, was awake. We're awakening. The Buddha's a Buddha. We, we're more in the Bodhisattva arena, waking up and, you know, not there yet. So there's a lot of uh, room for uh, learning more about what this is. The Bodhisattvas, when they take formal vows, they are really... Intense vows. They they, they go like this. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them. Dharma teachings are boundless. I vow to master them. And the Buddha's enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So you can imagine, I don't know what comes up with for you when you, when you hear that, but that's a big vow to take. And this vow is clearly not um, made with the intention that one day I'm going to get there necessarily because the Bodhisattva's work is meant to be refined over many lifetimes. But it is a vow that supports and acknowledges our interdependence. The understanding in this vow is that what we do in the world matters. If you can think of us as a collective, um, that our actions are homeopathic. We drop a little bit in the big ocean waters and it multiplies. It's a seed that gives bloom at some point and the Bodhisattva uses every obstacle in life to cultivate what's called Bodhicitta, the heart-mind and again it's for the benefit of all beings so every obstacle is seen as an opportunity to cultivate the heart And that's just something to think about in terms of an atmosphere as you leave here and go out, just knowing the potency of your actions and how you then use the potency of this practice that you've been steeping in and stewing in these past few days. One of the things we forget when we are focused in our practice is that we belong to each other. We really can become so solidified that we forget that we belong to each other. And I can never read what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says. He says that all life is interrelated. Somehow we're caught somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This is the interrelated structure of re- reality. And what happens in our conditioning is that there is severed belonging. We have been conditioned through our any number of things. We all have a story. We've been conditioned to separate and to uh, judge and to... Do any number of things that, as Tara was speaking to the us them dynamic, the other is a big part of. And it's not so much that the other is the bigger is is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is then there's a power dynamic that tends to go with that. So it's it, us and them becomes a whole another thing when you have the power to influence your your uh, usness. And so we see this this pain and this suffering throughout our. Um, communities and and in society so we're habituated to see certain things and not other things we're conditioned around seeing things and not seeing other things one of the teachings uh, in the Buddhist um, uh, uh, arena is around the aggregates and there's five aggregates that make up an experience. And there's a sense organ and a sense object, and when they meet, there's contact. Then we have a feeling tone about it. We either find it pleasant, and if we do, we want more of it. If we find it unpleasant, then we try to stamp it out and eliminate it. If it's an experience of neither pleasant or unpleasant, we tend to zone out. It's not something that we pay much attention to and then there's a perception that we have about that and that's the story we have about the experience which is oftentimes rooted in the past or in some hope and then we add to that a certain kind of proliferating morphing of the story that we then identify with strongly and it's like going to the uh to the fair and going to the cotton candy stand, and you start with the stick, you know, and then you put the cotton candy, it rolls in the cotton candy thing, and all of a sudden it gets really big, really big and big, and then you're handed this great big sticky thing called the mind, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which started with just the white stick, you know, just the experience, but then we've got all of the papancha, all of the proliferation added to it, And it becomes some sticky thing that we eat. (laughs) We drink the Kool Aid. We go for the Okie Doke. (laughs) And then we have all this sticky stuff on us, and we wonder well, what happened? I liked it, but it's really a mess, you know? (laughs) So that's kind of how we are when we get locked in on a view. You know, we, we go there, it morphs, it spins. And the challenge in our practice is to come back to the single white cardboard stick of experience, which is what's right here and now. It's really what the hand is holding. All the other stuff is added. So we're we're conditioned, though, to see that. You know, and even to have preferences like, I don't want the pink cotton candy, I want the orange one. Now we've got colors we can choose from. And when we lock on to an experience that we know and prefer or that we love to hate, then uh, you know, it narrows our view and there's a certain distortion that we're experiencing with. So, I love that Tara was suggesting to us, and that we don't believe our thoughts that you take a first take second take, that you don't believe the um, the pink stuff, but come back to a bare experience which is rooted in the contact with the white stick. another way that our view gets locked in and a bit distorted is that uh, we take things personally as a habit, you know, and we take things to be permanent when they're not, and we take things to be um, uh, very much a part of our identity uh, when it's not. So one rule I always, one mantra that I have as I'm walking around is, okay, is it is it, Am I taking this personally? Am I thinking this is permanent? Or do I, I think that I, I get to have this no matter what? And these these questions that I invite when I'm walking in the world and when I'm sitting on the cushion allows me to snap out of that sense of trance where I'm not taking it on so personally. Sometimes there are many things to look at. <laughs> and to um, adjust. And other times we need to just get a little distance instead of zooming in, zoom out a bit on what we're experiencing. And that's precisely the need when we are tight and fixed on a certain point of view as we're walking in the world. So not believing your thoughts is useful. Another thing that's useful is to um, notice the neutral, because when we lock into a point of view or our agenda or our destination or whatever this focused place is, there's inevitably something left out, because the view is 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 is, is narrow. So this neutral zone that we tend to fast forward through is a really rich territory and I just want to describe it. You probably all know it pretty well, but I want to shed some light on it because the, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the, the stars and the constellations. you know when you're used to seeing the constellation of your life, the story you have about it, then it's hard to see that you know they're actually all stars in the sky. So this neutral zone is like a, uh, another place where we're kind of in automatic pilot. This zone is, this is a place where we have little passion. It just doesn't light us up as much in the neutral zone. We don't notice things. There's a certain fuzziness here, and there's not, it, we're not well focused in the neutral zone. We fast-forward through... A lot of times a neutral zone doesn't feel like it's a part of our experience because it's not well-focused in our consciousness. And there can be a sense of indifference. It's also the territory where we, we feel boredom and ordinariness or we start doubting ourselves and wondering, you know, am I wasting time? This is also a place where we can rest and have a certain, there's a nuance here and a subtlety here that can support us in knowing this territory a little bit more and seeing what's really there. I heard a saying that once something like this, she is so familiar to me, I hardly know her. You know, it's that's the neutral zone where it's just... We just don't zero in. We don't connect there. So this is a really important um, inquiry or invitation when you go out into the world because sometimes we're really locked in on what we need to do, what we want to do, our problems. And, And the world is full of so many crazy things right now. I mean, sometimes it might be good to just zero in and not see that. But there is an um, intimacy with life that I think we open to and connect with that brings a certain uh, flavor and color and texture to our lives. And it's there. I heard it said that they may not live next door, but they're still your neighbors. It's that kind of getting that somebody's right here. I had a friend who lived in a, in a neighborhood she was in for about, 22 years and didn't really know her neighbors that well, didn't see them that often one uh, of the neighbor's sons passed away suddenly and all of a sudden it woke the whole neighborhood up and they started having these conversations like they had never had before and she asked the question, how could I have missed that all this time and it was just, just right here so inviting the question. What is it that I'm, what else can I open to so that I can see the fullness of life and my relationship to it? And another way of being with this is seeing that our intentions have impact in the world and maybe even noticing what that impact is. Sometimes we're not aware of what we might buy, the impact it might have here or the food we eat, what impact it might have there and our relationships with countries and and our planet? What do do we need to understand when we zoom out? So our practice, you know, supports us in um, both uh, turning inward and remembering, as Jonathan said the other night. This is a remembering, remembering that we... Belong to each other. Albert Einstein says it this way. He says, a human being is a part of the whole, called by us, universe. A part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest. A kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us in our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living beings and the world of nature in its beauty. that's a beautiful way to hold our relationship, our belonging to the world. And one of the ways that the Bodhisattva does this is through the practice of the paramis. And there are ten paramis that support waking up and walking in the world in a particular way that cultivates the heart. And I'll just mention them briefly. There's generosity, which is dana, the unconditional giving. The ethical, there's ethical integrity that, has, that, that I relate to discipline. There's renunciation, the letting go because you know you can't hold on to things. There's wisdom, seeing the nature of things, seeing the true nature of things. Energy, and I relate that to courage. Patience. Not to be confused with tolerance, but a sense of being with, being present to what's here. Patience, truthfulness, resolve, a sense of determination without clinging, kindness, and equanimity, a stability of mind. So the Bodhisattva is walking with these uh, intentions and these gateways to cultivate the heart-mind so that actions are in service for the benefit of all. And these pyramids are not about perfection, but rather about the path. Rather, this path reminds us that what we do really does matter otherwise suffering runs amok so we are training the mind to pay attention and to support certain ways of walking in the world my father was a plumber he owned a plumbing company and i remember the sketches in his office where he would you know prepare a house the you know the not the irrigation, but the, but the watering system so that the water would flow in a certain direction. And he was always concerned about making sure there was not harm to the other neighbors and things like that. And so there was a path that was actually orchestrated that supported the water flowing in a certain direction. And that's what we're doing in our path. We're actually practicing so that there's a certain flow to our lives And hopefully that it's not causing harm in any direction. One of the things that we can do moment to moment, on the cushion and off the cushion, is to begin to notice where in your body are you holding tension. This is an immediate indicator of how we can begin to see how we're holding our lives and how we're walking through life. Sometimes I'm just washing dishes and I'll know that, notice that my hips and my back are just gripped. And all of a sudden it'll occur to me, you know, why am I holding myself so tightly here? And I'll invite a softening right in that moment inviting a softening, inviting a softening. Uh, because these are just habits of clenching and, and, and restricting that happens on the inside. That actually, you know, and, I, and then I can notice that I'm holding the, the, the plate really tight in my hand. It's like, is that, do I need all of that just to wash the dishes? I mean, can I be a little lighter here? Can I lighten up, you know? becomes a way of just noticing. Mark Nepo says that in a world that lives like a fist mercy is no more than walking with your hands open. So in a world that lives like a fist mercy is no more than walking with your hands open. Opening your hand as a laborer of love as a relief to yourself. And sometimes I see this softening as a as a as an as an art form, you know, it's kind of this natural letting go. There's a certain grace in the movement. It's almost like a creative expression. It could be like a mudra even or You know, I think about some of the dancers and the grace of some of the sacred dancing. And that these gestures can be um, antidotes to some of the suffering that we have both internally and that we see in the world. I like what Pat Coffey refers to as the contemplative artist. The contemplative artist knowing that this practice is not as much a science as it is an art, as much as it is a dance. And I've been sitting with that term for the last several months and just seeing what it means to me, and it's brought up so many beautiful um, uh, reflections and dimensions in my own life, and I just wanted to share a few of them with you this evening. Choyan Trumpa Rinpoche says that we're all architects of space so we're all making it up by the way you know our mind is this amazing um, machine and as a bodhisattva or somebody that's walking on the path we have this amazing opportunity to put our hearts to creative use to put our hearts into the dance of life itself So we're architects and we're artists and we're dancers and writers and contemplators. I often um, see these forms of expressions coming from a place of deep listening and response. And um, I, I think about it sometimes as the rhythms of mind and the, that they have expressions and movement I was at a concentration retreat once, and I got so still that I was able to notice that the movement of my breath, the rhythm of my breath, was like yoga asanas. They followed a pattern of, ooh, there's downward facing dog. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, all of a sudden I could see the relationship between the body meditations, and the mind. And it was hard to know what was mimicking what. It was an amazing stillness that's not still at all. It's quite informative and quite intimate. It's like a sacred geometry. It's like the labyrinth that has a certain pattern that uh, is deeply ingrained into our psyches. And it's like improvisational jazz. So consider yourself an artist. And I invite you to reflect for a minute. How do you want to express your life? As an artist, how would you want to express your life? Some of you are probably artists already. But what would be that natural rhythm... Or even in your stillness practice, maybe you've noticed that there's a certain pattern or song or wave or movement that you've started to notice as a rhythm. So if we imagine our lives as an offering, we could see that there's Actions we can take in the world, in our lives, day-to-day lives, that would be a gesture. Our artistic expression could be a gesture of generosity, the paramis of generosity, and the paramis of joy. Joyful, creative expressions is the antidote to suffering on many levels. My mom was a bodhisattva. She passed away. It's been a year ago in May. She was uh, she was one month short of ninety, and she was very active in the civil rights movement. That was a big part of our life growing up in South Central Los Angeles. And um, in addition to being active in the civil rights movement, movement very active. Uh, She had, I had to write this down, eight kids, 32 grandkids, 18 great grandkids and nine great great grandkids by the time she died and was so proud of her branches and her tree. She was also, um, she also played the uh, piano in the church and we all grew up singing in the church. And so rhythm was very much a part of of my family. And my mother was the choir director, so she would teach people these soulful gospel songs that would reflect their life. So it would almost be the song that would bring people to life. So she she had this ability to match the song with the person. And at her 90th birthday, where she fixed all the food and played the piano throughout all of these elders some of them in wheelchairs all dressed up showed up to sing the song she had taught them to sing that brought them to life and it was really quite an amazing uh, experience and honor for her she knew she was dying so she gave herself a birthday party several months before her 90th birthday and she almost made it to that one month. And her music was her love offering to the world. She played the piano so beautifully that I was jealous of the piano keys. I used to say, "Oh, I wish I were that piano key." You know? She fried chicken so beautifully. I used to wish I was a chicken. (Laughter) <laughs> You know, there were eight of us, okay? So I wanted I, I want more. And what she did so eloquently was she used her hands to show her love. It's not always in these words, or it's not even in the things we do, but if you notice, you'll be able to see the, 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 the subtle ways people do what they do. I always think her first love was the piano. And she did that so beautifully. Jane Hirschville says that suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. Suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. And there was quite a bit of suffering uh, during the time I was growing up in South Central Los Angeles. And it continues to be suffering's not a new theme for people, but uh, the idea of bringing beauty to it and finding that as an offering is is a little more challenging. Jane Hirschfeld, who's a Soto Zen practitioner and poet, she says, "We make art because our lives are ungraspable, unchangeable." impossible to navigate without it." And she says that art isn't a superficial addition to our lives. It's as necessary as oxygen. In everyday life, art allows us to find a way to agree to suffering, to include it and not be broken. To say yes to what actually is. And then to say something further. Something that changes and opens the heart, the ears, and the mind. A work of art is always a conversation, not a monologue. So I love this idea of art as an expression, of the dharma as an expression, of dana as an expression, of mudita, joy, joy generosity and the dharma this notion of art as a language of affection that heals and expands the heart it's a way I find that you can taste the absolute in these teachings while also operating in the relative realm and the Buddha prior to his enlightenment when he was on the tail end of those very extreme practices of renunciation, one of his recollections was that he recalled himself being at a festival as a young boy. And he recalls how much joy there was and allowed himself to really delight in the experience of that festival. And I imagined him being in a tree or on top of somebody's head and bouncing around and there was music and magic and um, just a lot of love. And what the Buddha said in this reflection is he said, this joy does not harm. This joy does not harm. Audrey Lord, who's a Caribbean um, American writer, womanist, and civil rights activist says the sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, psychic, or intellectual, forms a bridge of understanding. It forms a bridge for understanding what is not shared, and it lessens the threat of distance. Now you can think about just that unifying quality that music brings to our lives. So when I was writing my book on rage, which was uh, quite the teacher for me, um, and quite a period of suffering in my life, because everything I got on the paper burned up from rage, because you know the critic was active and you know anyway it was a difficult birth to say the least this book and it was a big teacher and i remember sitting with a wise woman um the late angela Sarian, who uh, was a treasured teacher and anthropologist lived in the bay area and did a lot of elder retreats and and i saw her at a retreat at spirit rock and she's i told her i was writing this book she says oh come over and have tea with me i should have known given given a, jonathan's talk earlier about the tea that i was about to get something and um and she says so what's happening tell me what's happening i said well i'm writing this book she's written a number of books and and uh i said it's just really been difficult and it's just absorptive and You know, blah, blah, blah. And she listened very patiently, sipping. And then she said, well, when's the last time you danced? And I said, what, what? You know, When's the last time you were in your garden? You know, and she says, you got to have some joy when you're working with this suffering in the world. And the minute she said that, I understood completely. I understood completely because that's exactly what my mother did. With, with, um, with us coming up. And it wasn't so much the um, playing in the church, but on Friday nights, we had these jam sessions at our house. And it was all improvisational jazz. And she was at the piano, and the, the bass players would come, and the saxophones, and the singers, and they would improv. For hours, and all of them were active in the civil rights movement. And this was their creative offering of support <coughs> to each other uh, as a way of um, uh, dealing with something that was just hard to put words to and wasn't going to be over anytime soon. So the minute Angela Sarian said that to me, it's like, oh, of course, civil rights movement improvisational jazz makes sense to me so it was a beautiful connection on many levels for me to create a sense of balance the paramis of stability in my life of bringing in something that wasn't so out of balance and the paramis of of, uh, kindness and when you are cultivating an artistic expression whatever it might be you are working on the paramis. There's discipline involved. There's generosity involved. There's equanimity. There's kindness at times. You know? There's, 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 there, the paramis are at play when we are working with our creative expression. Rumi says that Today, like every day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door of your study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the earth. Truly. So even a world on fire with greed, aversion, and delusion, we can never give up on this capacity of heart that we have that can be so far-reaching and um, so needed. Toni Morrison says that silence is as close to music as you can get. So we're in a practice of deep listening and uh, listening to the nuance of the dance of our heart and this creativity and artistic expression is a wisdom practice it's a practice of discipline and knowing what you're capable of and knowing how to purify yourself in service to all beings So I'd like to. Um, you're probably wondering what this projector is sitting right here, right? But I'd like to leave you with uh, another bodhisattva, who uh, I would like to introduce and invite uh, Janet to turn the projector on. This is um, the late great Nina Simone. I would like to play a piece by her. Yanina Simone was born in 1933. And she died in 2003. And she was the sixth child of a preacher family raised in North Carolina, which happens to be where I'm living right now. (laughs) She aspired to be a concert pianist. She went to Juilliard, and against all odds, she found her creative expression in the world through song and piano playing. She was uh, later in her career diagnosed with bipolar. She was very involved in the civil rights movement and in the artist movement, um, with a lot of artists during her time. And I think if Nina Simone had known my mother, they were around the same age, there would have been a beautiful, she would have been at the house at the jam sessions improving with, with the artists that were there. Is it on? It's going. Okay. So what I'll invite you to do is to position yourself, if, if you like, to move so that you can see the screen. I'm going to get out of the way here. And um, let's see. And this song is called, I Wish I Knew What It Would Be Like to Be Free. And uh, what I want you to notice as you watch this is notice how her full body is part, of the, uh, is part of the gift, part of the offer. And pay attention to where your breath is and your body is while you're watching. And um, see, I just invite you to enjoy the, the offer of someone using these talents. Um, to to offer beauty in the world.
1: To be me, you'd see, you'd agree, everybody should be free, cause if we ain't, we're murderous. I, wish I could be like a bird in the sky. How sweet. go and
0: So let's just sit together for a few minutes. our suffering awaken us to our aliveness and may our aliveness through our practice compost itself into creative and joyful offerings to all beings without exception may we all know what it means to be free. Thank you.